I'm Daniel from Victoria, British Columbia. Hey, I'm Dan from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I'm Ed from Westchester, Pennsylvania. The Sound of Young America is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the show is the veteran stand-up comedian Paul Provenza. He's been doing comedy for 20-some-odd years, and he also has a second career as a sort of chronicler and celebrator of comedy. He co-wrote a book called Satiristas. He co-directed the film The Aristocrats, in which comedians from many generations came together to tell one grotesquely, horrifically vulgar joke. And now he's the host of a show on Showtime called The Green Room. It's an effort to recreate not the comedy stage, but the comedy backstage, the environment that exists in the community of comedians. Here's a clip from the first episode of season two of this show. The panelists in this clip are Judd Apatow, uh, Apatow's mentor Gary Shandling, the very funny Mark Marin, Ray Romano, and the very funny and very young, especially relative to those other guys, comedian Bo Burnham. It's very hard to watch someone that funny, that young, when you think of how unfunny you were at 20 years old. All I did at 20 is worry about my hair, I think. Yeah, that's a dead end. <laughs> as all you guys, as you got more successful, did you, did you feel like you got better or did you get more insecure? I'm out of this one, right? Yeah, me too. <laughs> Yes, you're, you're out of the break. But, but pay attention. Okay, okay. <laughs> I think, if I think of when I was the happiest, and I'm not complaining, I love what I'm doing and all that, but I think when I was doing stand-up, when I was going to the cellar and hanging out with you guys and my twins were two years old, kind of was crazy, I, I think of that, and I was still kind of screwed up then, but I think I was the happiest then. But I'm happy now, too. I'm not saying I'm not happy now. I'm saying I love the right. show. I love what I'm doing. I love getting the... Ray is happy. Yeah. No, no, no. no, no, no. Let's just be clear about that. <laughs> this is me happy. Ray yeah. is happy. So yeah. that, don't leave thinking he's not happy. <laughs> Paul, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on the show. I want to ask you about something that I, I, I haven't talked... There have been many comedians have been guests on The Sound of Young America, but this is something I haven't talked to many of them about, but I think it's very central to the work that you've done, especially the green room, but elsewhere too, which is that I think in, in any professional environment, there's a community that grows up, you know, like I, I know the people that I look forward to seeing when I go to the public radio conference and right, so on. Right. It's sort of like the office cooler writ large. But I, I think it's, I think it's different for stand-up comics. Right. The experience of walking into the improv and meeting people who um, felt the same way that I did, people who were um, alienated in the same ways that I was, when you encounter – Judd Apatow put it, put it great. In, in fact, this is in Satiristas. He says he felt the same exact thing that when he walked into a room full of comedians, 
he realized that he was with his own species. And he said he felt like that, that uh, the, the girl in the bee costume from the Blind Melon video, who as uh, she wanders through the field, finds a whole group of other people in bee costumes. And all of a sudden, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. Did you have that you know, experience? Absolutely. To me, it was, like, it, it, it was like when you let a dog run, uh, you know, take him off the leash at the dog park. And it's just, let me sniff as many butts as I can because these are all my people, you know? Um, and, um, and that was huge. That was the first time I felt really connected to anything. And one of the conundrums in that kind of a community is exactly what you were referring to, that everybody in that community also is a complete and total individual. And they, those things could coexist. And what I loved the most about it was that all the people who were weird and funny looking and had speech impediments and just just they were offbeat and quirky and weird. And they were all the people that were, would have gotten in trouble for those very qualities in high school and childhood. And instead of shunning them or instead of locking them away in a closet instead of beating themselves up over it they owned them and turned them into their currency and ultimately the source of their identities and their happiness and their art which um i think is really uh, it, it's almost oprah like in terms of it, of being self-help you know um so that's a, a big part of the motivation behind uh, a lot of my recent work is i i want people to have an experience of comedy that goes beyond just jokes and somebody's prepared work that goes to a, a sort of mindset, a sort of an attitude, a certain way of being so they can experience that as well as uh, the other more obvious things. I, I want to play another clip from that first episode of the second season. You have this really amazing panel on this show. I mean, a very, a very interesting mix of comic personalities. And one of the most interesting folks on this panel is Gary Shandling, who is, um, I mean, besides his work as a, as a stand-up comic, as a brilliant stand-up comic and uh, uh, real-life late-night television host, is one of the most significant television comedy writers of yeah. our time, having sort of rewritten what a sitcom could be and created Judd Apatow. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. And, and, and Gary is a bit of an enigma to, to a lot of people in comedy. A know? lot of people in the world. He yeah. may be an enigma to himself. And in fact, this, <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> this, clip is, this clip is throughout the episode, you're, you, you sort of jab at him trying to get him to talk about where he is in his life because it's a, it's a very mysterious world that he lives in. And uh, in this clip, he, he talks a little bit about it, and then everybody makes fun of Bo Burnham a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Who can hold his own, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I want to hear about your journey. I want to know if you've, if you've attained anything through your study of Buddhism. I, I don't know if attained is the right word. So uh, with the whole thing's a mess. I mean, uh, you get closer to just being. What exactly does that mean? So translate it into comedy, what it means. Oh, my God. Translate I mean, like, it for, into as comedy? A comic, as a comic. I will. How do you... How I do will. You... It's closest to where he's starting, which is I'm not really trying to be anything right now. I'm sitting down. I'm gonna, this is what I do. Do you think Bo's just healthy? I think Bo's really healthy, yeah. And, and he can be as funny as us f***ed up. <laughs> Are you damaged? No, I, t I always... Come on, you gotta be. No, no I, I, I... You wanna be? Yeah, let's I know. Not. Part of what the show seems like it's about is people creating this 
skill for themselves, honing this skill, which is going up on stage with nothing but a microphone and making people laugh to the point where they know how to execute that. Right. They can execute that. And creating at least a stage version of themselves that is so clear and specific that they can convey it to an audience, you know, within a couple of sentences. Um, and then getting to a point where they realize, oh, I also have to figure out who I am in my life and what my role is in the world. Yeah. Well, it, you know, like any other occupation, as you go through it, as you live it for a certain amount of time and you reach a certain point in life, um, you want to move forward. You want to you want to see what else there is within that very particular world that you've devoted your life to. You know, I mean, uh, uh, that's what's interesting to hear comics talk about things that that, um, you know, everybody experiences. It's just processed in a different odd way. But that episode with um, Shandling and Romano and, and Marin and Apatow and Burnham is particularly interesting because, um, you know, uh, Bo being so young and such a phenom um, and also just brilliant. I mean, he's one of the most intelligent comedians I've ever met. And he's, he's one of the most he's intelligent just, people I've ever met. He's a very successful stand-up comic who became successful through his YouTube channel. When he uh, was about 15 or 16, he was getting ridiculous, uh, you know, attention from his YouTube videos. So by the time he started he's performing... Like 21 now, he's 22, about, something I think like that. He was 20 when we taped... Uh, this episode, so I guess he's about 21 now, but um, he started performing live at about 18, and the the strides he made from when he was making videos at the age of 16 to when he started performing at 18 and where he's at now at 21, they're just massive leaps. I mean, this kid is really, really special. It, it, it's wrong to even call him kid because in a lot of ways he's an old soul, but to hear him... Uh, ask the kinds of questions that he was interested in from people like Gary Shandling and Ray Romano and have Ray Romano talk about it. And we even showed a, a clip from 95 Miles to Go where Ray is talking about how he, he feels like he's a fraud or he feels like, like you know, he's always uncomfortable that the audience is just going to all of a sudden decide, wait a second, this guy's a big phony, you know, and um, uh, and then we talk about how that never changes, that 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 goes on through a person's entire career, you know? So it's a very interesting mix of sort of young and hopeful and, and older established and realistic. Um, but at all levels, it's very human. Everybody's talking from a very human place with their own emotional experience. After a break, find out if I can get Paul Provenza to admit that he made up the joke that's at the center of his film, The Aristocrats. It's the sound of young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio, International. Production of the Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. Uh, my guest on this show is the veteran comedian Paul Provenza. He's also the host of the Showtime show, The Green Room, which seeks to recreate on stage the backstage relationship between comedians. In this clip from the second episode of season two of the show, the comedian Greg Proops starts talking about meeting Milton Berle and then... Well, things go wild from there. You'll, you'll also hear uh, Paul Provenza, my guest. I did a contest years ago, and Milton Berle was one of the judges. Toward the He's end. a delight. You should yeah. be happy it was just a joke contest. You know? And, uh... 
But, uh, I would have needed to bring my white clarinet to play in that other contest. And my wife goes, uh, he laughed at your Civil War joke. And I'm like, of course he did. Matthew Brady took his first headshot. And, you know. <laughs> Matthew Brady was a photographer during the Civil War era. That's the thing I love about Greg Proof, man. Proof throws out references and you hear Dennis Miller go, what? <laughs> You brought up earlier the idea of uh, comedians riffing, and, and I know that you're keen on, an anal- on the analogy to jazz between, um, uh, between the improvisation of, say, bebop and the uh, improvisation of a group of comedians particularly. Uh-huh. And I get the impression that when you are putting these shows together, it is a very considered choice. It is more than just who are the... Who are the, not just the biggest comedians, but who are the most, you know, compelling comedians that I can happen to be able to book on that day that you're really like trying to find out what it's like to pair Dexter Gordon and Max Roach or whatever. Absolutely. That's, that's exactly it. That's really where I do my quote unquote writing on the show is uh, the combinations of people I put together. And sometimes they're not, sometimes they're completely obvious to me and not at all obvious to, to the audience, which I love. Can you give me an example? Um, well, Bo on that show is a great example. Um, uh, another interesting show uh, from season one was uh, an episode with Roseanne Barr, Bob Saget, Sandra Bernhardt, and Patrice O'Neill. Um, that was really uh, surgically uh, um, put together because Roseanne, first of all, is very, very political and very outspoken and very interesting. And I had seen the cover that she had done of Heap magazine. So I, I wanted to talk about that. And that's another thing is that there really is no agenda. I don't prepare questions per se. The only questions that are prepared are questions that I would have for somebody if I ran into them and said, I saw that thing you did. I wanted to ask you about this. Yeah, um, so the preparation is kind of really organic. Uh, just I knew I wanted to talk to Roseanne about this very provocative art photograph and um and i knew that it would lead into her politicization and her and her outspokenness um patrice is very much the same way but they couldn't be more different people um bob saget is an old friend of roseanne's um and had worked on the road with patrice but bob now i've known bob since 1975 and um bob is and I, and I say this not as an insult or, or in any negative way. Bob is just hilarious. He just loves to make you laugh. He will always come up with a one-liner, some outrageous idea. Just, you know, throw it out there just to crack you up. But it's very hard to get him to talk really and personally, particularly in, uh, in public. Uh, one-on-one, it's different. But, but, um, but I also know that Patrice refuses to have a conversation that's not substantive and that I knew that he would bust Bob for me. And so that combination was really interesting. Of course, Sandra, with her experience, you know, her closeness with Roseanne gave Roseanne a level of comfort. Uh, Patrice gave Bob a little bit of level of comfort. Um, uh, Sandra also being very outspoken. I knew that she would bring up other issues. Uh, And she's also a very interesting person to talk to about race because the way she deals with race is very particular and very different from most most white middle-aged people dealing with race. And so that was a, 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 a sort of mixture that I, that just felt really, really fertile and really rich. And the personalities were such that I, I knew I could trust them to take it to interesting places. Um, and that's one of the things about the show also that I'm very proud of. I'm not really the host of the show. I'm really the, just the luckiest guy there. I'm the guy who gets to jam 
with all these people to continue that music analogy. Um, I don't look at myself as controlling it. In fact, there's an episode in season two where I even, I just get up and I go to the bathroom because I don't need to be there because it's not like the ship needs steering. <laughs> you do you know? do a fair amount of goading though. Um, I do, but that's what I do. And that's what I do in life. <laughs> See, that's the interesting thing also is that dynamics occur. I mean, I do have in my head a sense of, I want everybody to get, get the floor as it were. I want everybody to get their, their piece out there, but it's, also within the the organic uh, pecking order that happens or the dynamic that normally would happen anyway you know we we did a show uh, this season with doug stanhope janine garofalo richard belzer a canadian comedian who's absolutely one of my favorites in the world glenn wool and um dave attell and it turned into such an authentic green room where Doug Stanhope had a personal thing he wanted to deal with with Janine about, and Attell didn't care, and he was sitting in the middle of him, and he was like, can I change my seat? You know, and, and Belzer and I go back to a different generation than most of the others, and just the dynamics and everything that happened on that show were so authentically like a green room that I, I really, halfway through, I, I, I forgot that we were actually making a TV show, which I think is the greatest place to be. You know? Well, one of the things about comedy specifically, and there, there have been other, other shows like this, but I think that when you bring a group of comedians together, they may have some expertise on like, you know, uh, hot new reality shows or uh, toys from the 80s or, you know, politics and public policy or whatever, like just like any other group of people, right. they have some expertise on that, I'm sure. Right. But what comedians do really have a lot of expertise on is themselves because not only are they themselves, but that is their job to be themselves. It is a very solipsistic there's, there's uh, no There's no other career that is, that is so defined by a need to have an understanding of who you actually are. And for many comedians, the arc of their career is, well, for six years I was kind of funny, but I wasn't me. Right. And then right. it changes when they become them. Yes. And that, by the way, is one of the reasons why there tends to be older comedians on the show because that's what it takes it takes time on this planet to really understand who you are and to really you know zero in on on that and be um comfortable in your own skin with that um um yes i think you're right i i think that's a big part of it do you think comedians are actually uh like sadder or more dysfunctional than other people, as we often You know, hear. this comes up all the time, and, and I, I just, my feeling on it is this, is that I bet if you really did the numbers, I bet it's the same percentage as in the general population. The I'm difference happy, very being, happy to hear you say that. Continue. The difference being that comedians wear it on their sleeves. They ride it into the sunset. They don't, you know, uh, agonize over it. They don't lock it away. They're not afraid of it. They've turned it into an asset. They've turned something that is a liability for them and for most people in general socialized society uh, into real assets and, and very um, idiosyncratic um, uh, aspects of who they are. It's their so, job to be and express yeah, themselves. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I don't believe that it's any different than any other um, subgroup you care to isolate. I, I, I have absolutely no evidence or proof of that. It's just my gut. 
I just think that everybody screwed up. I think that everybody screwed up. It's just some people go crazy because they can't just accept that they're screwed up or whatever it is. Whereas comedians just go, yep, I'm screwed up. What's the, what's the most I can make out of this? You know, um, but I really don't believe that they're, they're more damaged than anybody else. I think the real issue is that most people don't believe that everybody is damaged. <laughs> so it seems like comedians are. But really, this is a sick damaged society that we live in well there's no part of being an accountant where you uh go out in front of uh 200 people and tell them about your mom no but you might still feel the same uh alienation that sure. comedians feel and, and turn of into course. careers no. if you have mom you might, issues you just it's just not your job to talk about exactly exactly in fact you better shut up because it's not appropriate anywhere else and that's the thing that comedians don't play by it's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is comedian, actor, writer, and director Paul Provenza. His television program on the Showtime Network is called The Green Room. You and Pendulette made uh, this hilarious movie called The Aristocrats that was a, um, a sort of a, a catalog of the art of stand-up comedy from... Um, I love watching people try and explain what this movie actually is. If not quite the the very birth of stand-up comedy, then uh, at least, you know, George Carlin's in the movie, at least the birth of it as an an art form, as its own special thing. Um, And it's it's, uh, dozens of comedians telling the same joke all in their own way. Um, And I think it's been like, the movie came out, what, five or eight years ago? 2005. So so six or seven years ago, um, I think it's time to just let it be said that you just made this joke up. You know what? I, this I've is heard not this a theory. real joke. I've heard this theory. This People is have, not a real joke, Paul. Pe- pe- this made it onto the internet as some sort of a some sort of a, a conspiracy theory, I guess. That um, be- it came actually from the fact that Penn is you know a magician and does the show that he did on. Uh, it Showtime. came from the fact that you made this joke up. I wish we were that smart. I wish that we had thought of something that sophisticated because that would put another whole. You're metal telling layer me on you it. didn't explain what this joke is to at least two thirds of the people in this movie. I would say there were. You went thing. to Sarah Silverman. She's like, oh yeah, I know that joke. No, Sarah had not heard the joke, and I just ran it down for her. But um, uh, uh, two thirds of the people in there did know the joke. More than the three quarters of the people knew the joke. First of all, most people started in the seventies. Do you think that they knew, knew the joke because it had a resurgence? Are in the you 70s sure because that they it was didn't... very much like a Derek and Clyde? kind of thing are you sure they didn't just are they weren't just familiar with the movie the aristocats i'm certain uh, when you said do you know the aristocrats they heard the aristocats and they were thinking everybody wants to be a cat when we called george carlin to do this um the first thing we talked about actually because this is another example of of the jazz analogy because that's really what it is um, it's the singer, not the song. It's, you know, take a standard and do your own interpretation of it, which is something that jazz cats, you know, do. Um, but that doesn't, jazz bows, they prefer to be known as, but that doesn't exist in comedy because you're supposed to be writing your own material, but it does exist in, you know, backstage and in, in the world, so to speak. But, um, when we called Carlin about it and we said, we want to do this thing, we want to look at comedy as jazz and we're going to find a joke that everybody can do their own interpretation of. He said, what's the joke? I said, the aristocrats. And he went, that's great. I have a notebook on that joke. 
Call me in about three weeks. I'm going to dig it out. I'm going to get some stuff ready for you. I'm going to reacquaint myself with this. So he had actually felt the same kinds of things that we felt many years previously. He felt like this this book deserves a little plan. This joke deserves a little playing around with. Um, uh, so no, no, it really did exist. And and Jay Marshall, who is the uh, first person who tells the joke in the movie, um, he was in his 90s at the time. He has since passed away, but he uh, actually placed it back uh, by. F- Firsthand, he placed it back to the middle of, of the 19th century because he was a kid in vaudeville and he had heard it from an old stagehand who had heard it when he was a kid in vaudeville. So that brings it back firsthand to about, you know, mid to late 1800s. Yeah. I think anybody who said they knew it, they were just thinking of the movie. Well, you're going to get people calling in right now and they're going to tell you when they heard it. Musicians know it. A lot of musicians know it. People it are went around, call it went in around with musicians and comics. People are going to call in and tell me their version of the joke, I bet. Well, then uh, you are in for um, a oh. questionable treat because <laughs> that went on for years for me. But uh, no, no, the joke really did exist. And I wish we had, we were sophisticated enough to have created that premise. And 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 made it a whole scam. That was a brilliant idea when it was put forth. Pan and I were like, "Well, we should just say that that's what we did because that's way better than what we did." Well, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the San Diego. Thank you for having me. It's a it's a treat to be here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Paul Provenza's uh, television program, The Green Room with Paul Provenza, airs Thursday nights and uh, I'm guessing a lot of other times during the week on the Showtime Network. One hopes. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. Our music provided by Dan Wally. Our intern is Paulo Balboa. Special thanks this week to Paul Ruest at the Argo Studios for engineering the New York side of my conversation with Jeff Garland. If you want to download this show or any of our past interviews. You can do it for free at MaximumFun.org or in iTunes. Just search for The Sound of Young America. While you're at MaximumFun.org, I encourage you to check out all of our other programs like the comedy advice show, My Brother, My Brother and Me, the comedy judge program, Judge John Hodgman, and my own comedy talk show, Jordan Jesse Go. They're all at MaximumFun.org and they're all absolutely free. That's about it for us this time. See you next week on The Sound of Young America. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.